Greetings, travelers. Welcome back to Tales from the Enchanted Forest. Over the past few episodes, Fox and I have been covering epic heroic stories from the Shahnameh. Since there was so much to cover, we decided to release our five fantastic finds for this trilogy in a special bonus episode. Join us as we discuss some additional nuggets of information we found while researching these stories. Number one. Som's son, Zal, was born healthy and beautiful, but Zal abandoned him in the mountains where the Simmer lived, for Zal had white hair. Som believed that this was a curse from a demon, and he wondered what he had done wrong for this to have happened. Today, we know that albinism is a result of a lack or absence of pigment in skin, eyes, and hair, so no demons involved in this, just genetics, and it certainly does not mean that Zal wouldn't grow up to be healthy either. But unfortunately for Zal, humans are afraid of what's different, so he got booted before he could say albino. Thankfully, Zal ended up proving his father wrong and went on to be a true hero that Som was proud of. But if Som had consumed as much media as we have, then I wouldn't blame him for being at least a little suspicious. After all, in fictions, characters with white hair, especially when they are young, often are or will become a major antagonist to the heroes. Especially if it is long and not tied back, these are all indicators that a character is falling in step with the white hair black heart trope. This is likely used for characters like this because white hair is a natural occurring hair color, but it's highly uncommon for characters in their youth. Thus, it is this natural, unnatural contrast that likely makes those around them slightly uncomfortable, just as Psalm was. Again, Zal does not fall into this trope, but this is likely what Psalm was afraid of. Actual examples of this trope include Prince Lotor from Voltron, Roy from Blade Runner, Little Gideon from Gravity Falls, Present Snow from the Hunger Games series, Ricky and Xehanort from Kingdom Hearts, Sephiroth from Final Fantasy VII, and that's not even to mention the drow race in D&D, which historically had white hair and an evil alignment. With all that said, this is still just a trope, and there are many white-haired characters that are heroes like Zal. Number two. I joke a lot about the fact that Rostam seems to be sleepy or asleep a lot of the time in some of his stories. From the Hathcon to the time he fell asleep on a boulder hunting a div, Rostam likes his naps. However, this is not just a joke. There's an actual reason why Rostam seems to be in a dreamlike state at the beginning of many of his great episodes, and it all comes down to a Freudian explanation. Psychological critique as a form of literary analysis tries to understand the mental state or role of the mental state in many characters. Freud and Jung get referenced a lot because their theories hold the key to explaining the ways in which characters behave. Freud's theory on the human consciousness divides it into three levels. The conscious is everything we are aware of. The preconscious is everything we could pay attention to or easily recalled memories. And the unconscious consists of the things we cannot or do not understand. This last part, the unconscious mind, stores our repressed memories, urges, and unpleasant thoughts. These levels also correspond with Freud's concept of the ego, superego, and the id. The ego is a part of the conscious reality and works within a structure of social norms, rules, and realities. For Rostam, his ego and conscious mind would know that his duty is to the crown, and there are certain expectations of him as a champion and a hero. The superego is the part that exists in both the conscious and unconscious, and is a source of morality and self-criticism. When Rostam feels a sense of shame, pride, guilt, or anything relating to his moralistic goals, that is his superego. And the most important part of Rostam's personality is the id, this primitive and instinctive part of his mind that contains all his urges and impulses. This part only exists in the unconscious part of the mind, 
and so to unlock it, Rostam needs to be in a dreamlike state. Many scholars have written extensively about the battle between the different parts of Rostam's mind and how they shape his adventures. I'd argue that Rostam is constantly battling between his own morality and his desires. His role was given to him at birth, and he knows nothing but the life he has led to be almost a slave to Kekovus. He is a henchman to a bad king for the majority of the story and needs to accept it. In the tragedy of Sarab and Rostam, he rides into battle because he has to, but gives into his hidden impulses without reason and denies his own name and lineage. This primitive desire to be nobody is the beginning of the end for him. Rostam was prophesied to be a great hero, but he knew if he wanted to be a really great hero, he would need a cool horse to complete the whole ensemble. So he finds the best horse he can, scares the mom away by screaming at her before claiming his mount for life, Rockish. And Rockish quickly proves he is not all bark when he kills a lion with his bite. While Rostam does not always appreciate his faithful mount, Rockish proves to be a one-of-a-kind horse with his physical prowess and his keen perception of dangers when Rostam is asleep. Between having a name, never needing food, water, or even rest, Rockish checks all the boxes of the cool horse trope. There is even the added cool bonus that Rostam cannot ride another horse due to his <clears throat> strength. But Rostam is not the only fictional cool hero who needs a cooler ride to boot. Many other high fantasy heroes find themselves looking for their own cool horses, and guess what? I really want to discuss some of them, so let's dive in. The basic cool horse only needs to have a name, be exceptional in at least one way, and be loyal to the hero. Rockish fits this category along with Epona from the Legend of Zelda series. Epona is a particularly fast horse that has a red coat and a white mane. Beyond that, she has no super ability beyond the usual cool horse fare. But we do know that she has a deep loyalty to Link. In the Legend of Zelda Twilight Princess, you can speak to her in your wolf form and it's very clear that she cares for Link and is choosing to help him of her own accord. She will give Link encouragements and tell him to not give up and keep going. But sometimes, cool horses have lots to say. The talking horse category tends to make these horses more fleshed out characters and can have much more interesting dynamics with the hero. Keyword is can. Sometimes they can come across as more of a pet, often like a dog, than an actual horse or steed. And sometimes they just do their job, but talk a lot while doing it. Horses in this category would include the flying unicorn Swiftwind from She-Ra. He was originally just a normal horse, but due to magic, he transformed into a talking winged horse. Honestly, I find Swiftwind falling more under the category of annoying than anything else, but he is very loyal to She-Ra and does prove to be helpful time and time again. While he might not be my favorite cool horse, he certainly is a perfect example of this category. The other interesting subcategory I want to touch on is the ones where the cool horse is tied to the hero through more than just loyalty and power of friendship. Maybe they are bound by magic or some special animal imprinting. Either way, these steeds will always ride or die with their hero. Examples of this would be the headless horse familiar Shooter to his master Celti from the anime series Durarar <laughs> and Appa to Aang from Avatar The Last Airbender. Number 4 there is a specific reason why we chose the stories we did from the Shaname. Not only do they cover a range of hero archetypes, from romantic to tragic, but they are stories about fathers and sons. The entire Shaname is about the conflict between the fathers and sons in the stories, whether they are heroes or kings. 
This conflicting dynamic overflows into the troubles between the heroes and the kings as well, and we see this in the issues between Caecavus and Rostam. Zalm rejects his son Zal almost immediately, and the repercussions of this trickle down to the conflicts between Zal and his own son, and climaxes with the death of a son, Surab, at the hands of his father. There is also one of the defining stories of Esfandiar and his father, the King Gostap, who orders him to go after Rostam in an unjust way, and even though Esfandiar knows this will lead to his death, he follows his father's orders. After killing his own son and being refused a life-saving cure from the king, Rostam still follows Kay Kavus. The divine right of the kings and their divine far trumps rationality in some ways and makes the heroes and princes trip over themselves to accommodate the whims and fancies of their king, even if it costs them their life. In their journal article on the function of this conflict, Azadullah Jafar and Elham Kobini from the University of Payamnur examine stories of fathers and sons worldwide in order to claim that this relationship is often a confrontational one. One of the most famous father-son betrayals is that of King Arthur and his son-slash-nephew Mordred, where the latter kills King Arthur in battle. In Norwegian stories, there's also the story of Hadubrand and his father, Haldbrand, who are locked into battle. Hildbrand recognizes his son, but the younger man refuses to accept the reality, and so Hildbrand agrees to fight, knowing he cannot honorably refuse the battle. This grand reveal happens too late for anything to be done, and is reminiscent of the Luke I am your father trope, which includes examples like Oedipus and his entire accidental complex. The second element of this dynamic is the lost father trope, where the father leaves an item for the mother to give their children. One of the most famous examples of this is Theseus. King Aegeus hides a sword and pair of sandals under a rock, and said that if they have a heroic son, he should retrieve the items and bring them to Athens. Theseus and his six laborers on his way to find his father, the king, is reminiscent to Rostam and Sarab's story in many ways. Theseus has to find his magic item, he has to conquer a whole bunch of different trials like Rostam did, and then he needs to confront his father figure. These issues between fathers and sons, kings and heroes, subjects and kings, all lead to the same question. How far do we need to go to accommodate those who have been given the divine right to rule? And how far do we need to go to accommodate those who have a divine right over us? For Rostam, it ends up with the death of his son. This is the great tragedy of Rostam's life. He chooses to follow the king and the divine right of God's will. But in the end, it leaves him with nothing but a son who is dead, a foster son, Zavosh, who also gets murdered, and in the end, his own death. Number five. Rostam is the most well-known hero in the Shahnameh, and we covered a great deal of his many adventures which highlight why he is an interesting hero. From his trials and beyond, we can see his cleverness, strength, and his ability to push through any circumstance. Well, besides one pitfall. But besides that, he is a one-man army that can handle any situation and is very loyal to the crown. The problem is when the one wearing the crown is a complete and utter idiot. Q. Kinkavus. During his reign, Rostam, being the cool hero that he is, becomes the right-hand man of Kavus. But it's more accurate to say he is the more hyper-competent sidekick in this scenario. The hyper-competent sidekick trope occurs when a very incompetent boss has an underling who is far smarter and stronger than the boss himself. Despite this, the hyper-competent sidekick is loyal to said boss and often does not want to replace them at all. In Rostam's case, this is because he believed that the king was picked by God and his loyalty to his faith and country in turn made him loyal to the king, even when the king was starting needless wars. But 
there are a variety of other reasons a hypercompetent sidekick would stick with their bosses till the very end. Sometimes the hypercompetent sidekick has deep feelings for their less than competent boss. Whether it has a sense of kinship or romantic interest, these duos have some of the most interesting or tragic plot lines attached to them, depending on whether the boss actually has reciprocated these feelings. This is also one of the more believable reasons, since, as we see in these stories, love is a powerful motivator and it does not always make sense. And then sometimes the hypercompetent sidekick just can't be bothered with taking over their boss's job, as in the case with Shigo from the Kim Possible series. Every step of the way, she is an extremely capable fighter and is very clever. She will often be seen pointing out the flaws in Dr. Draken's evil plans, despite him being the genius-slash-boss in this dynamic. So, why is she playing second fiddle? In Shigo's case, she simply lacks the ambition to do it herself, and is more than happy just to relax and fight Kimmy once a week. During the events of the first movie, A Stitch in Time, we can see Shigo actually wins when she tries to go at it without Draken in charge. Whatever the reasoning, the hypercompetent sidekick always tends to be more feared of the duo, and is surprisingly relatable. After all, we have all had that one boss or friend where you wonder what they would do without your help. Thank you for joining us on this special bonus episode. Be sure to join us next time when we continue our exploration of classic heroes with a tale of a knight, a dragon, and a princess. What tale could we possibly be covering? You'll have to come back next time to find out. And remember, there's always a place for you in the Enchanted Forest. Thank you.